I want to be hesitant to do too much sort of armchair psychology, especially because I don't know what his journey has been the last 10 or 12 years. This is Jay Smooth on Charles Hamilton. But uh, I think that was an early example of how being young and getting a bunch of attention online for a brilliantly talented, sensitive young human being that probably has some issues and demons that they're working on and bringing into that, that could be a really volatile thing. And uh, if you haven't been properly prepared for it, if you don't have the right support system around you, that can easily go from zero to 100 and have people wanting to get on a plane to come for your neck and have you just doubling down and being more and more self-destructive. Like, I think that's something we've seen play out 10,000 times since then. And this was an early example of uh, people being very happy to just jump to a black and white conclusion about a person. In 2009, the internet was up. Up in popularity. Up in page views. Up in options. So many people were winning because there were so many ways to win. But winning doesn't come without its own downs. While the internet allowed for many more colors to be seen, many of its users saw things in black and white. Underground and commercial. Conscious and street. Fire and trash. And there are no two better examples of Technicolor in this time than the ones we talk about here, where it's the real. And this is episode 7, To the Moon. No two artists symbolize the blog era more than Charles Hamilton and Kid Cudi. Two artists whose virality took them to places never imagined and whose beings were tested in ways they may not have been prepared for. Two artists born in Cleveland, Ohio. Both featured on the game-changing 2009 XXL freshman cover. Two artists with immense musical talent, caring support systems, and incredibly quick rises. Kid Cudi's introspection and honesty mixed with his melodies would rocket him into outer space. And Charles Hamilton's intelligence and poetry, along with his honesty, would earn him a seven-figure record deal. It would also get him dropped by his label less than a year later. Here's Peter Rosenberg. I could argue that in a different world, Charles Hamilton's just as talented as Kid Cudi. And if things go differently, Hamilton is Cudi and Cudi is Hamilton. I think mental health plays an issue with both of them and mental well-being and then how those things go and who's around you, who's looking out for you and what happens and who can help you keep it together. You know, like you got to then end up in the right hands Scott Miscuddy was the youngest of four siblings in a home run by his mother, Elsie, a middle school choir teacher. Regularly skipping meals to feed her kids, Elsie didn't have her own bed for years. It wasn't an easy life, and it was made much tougher when, while Scott was just a preteen, his father, Lindbergh, got sick with cancer. Scott and his siblings would go to their dad's bedside every day after school. When he passed, it was devastating. Scott's anger tore his insides apart. He stopped caring about school and got expelled. But his mother never left his side. This is the woman who, years earlier, discovered him singing under his bed and encouraged him to join a choir. She bought him Calvin and Hobbes books to get him to draw. And so, with his mother's encouragement, in 2001, Scott recorded his first demo, hoping to make something big, something bold. Cleveland wasn't the Hollywood of the Midwest, so Elsie bought him a one-way ticket. At the airport, Scott and his mother were crying so much, strangers assumed he was going off to war and came up to her telling her he'd be safe. But he wasn't going to Iraq. He was coming to New York. Charles was the only child born to a lawyer father, also named Charles, and a journalist mother, Talise. Their marriage was short-lived due to alcohol, and Charles and his mother soon relocated to Harlem. The word genius gets thrown around a lot, and especially when talking about a young Charles, he played piano, wrote melodies and lyrics, and was a sight to behold. He was special, and people enjoyed being in his presence. It was just the two of them at home in Harlem, though, and in an attempt to have Charles in touch with his entire family, 
his mother brought Charles for a visit back to Cleveland. And that's where things changed. When Charles was sexually abused by a cousin on his father's side, and his aunt placed the blame on him for being, quote, too beautiful. Charles understood that as if he didn't accept fault, he wasn't beautiful. It was a deeply humiliating and disturbing episode for the young boy. The family broke up, and blame was pushed onto the blameless. Charles and Charles Sr. had little to no relationship from then on. Charles struggled with this weight on his shoulders through five different high schools before finding a home, figuratively and literally, at Frederick Douglass Academy in Harlem. He slept in the school recording studio after being kicked out of his mother's apartment. Battling addictions with drugs, including heroin, as a way to escape, Charles still found it in him to create music. It was at FDA where he would meet his closest circle of friends, musicians and minds, forming a crew, Demevelist Music Group. One of the members was young Nate, who first met him during a rap battle in the lunchroom. When you see Charles for the first time, because we wore uniforms, like he had on two pink ties. It was so weird, man. He had on two pink ties and a blue tie, um, these big shoes. And he just he just looked like Charles, like how you envision Charles to look. But this is like during Dipset era, so he like stuck out crazy. And I remember him just going for like five minutes straight. He had about 100 bars and he just rapped straight. And I've never even heard someone rap for that long, let alone having, having the control that he did at that age. And like, I just respected him from that moment on. You know, this is like skipping ahead, but were there any signs that Charles was dealing with a lot, um, like on his plate? From the very first moment, you knew it. We actually were making like a FDA mixtape pretty much. And we were um, we were in like a studio on 36th Street, actually, I think it was. And we were looking for Charles for about an hour because he had to do his verse. Nobody knows where Charles is, but the bathroom door is locked. I'm 16 at the time. Charles is 17. I'm banging on the door. Eventually, like I picked the lock in the bathroom and he was on the floor, just like doped out, like just out of it or whatnot. And I remember like I just got down on the floor with him and like just held him like, yo, bro, like, I don't know. He was like, mate, like, I don't feel like doing this shit. Like this music thing is never going to happen. And like, it was the craziest experience in my life. Like he would rap about being on drugs, but I never got to see him be on drugs. And it's the first time that I saw that. And yeah, from that moment on, I knew that we had to keep him close, but not try to push him away at the same time or think we're trying to bother him or anything like that. But yeah. Scott, who went by Cuddy, moved in and out of a few apartments around New York and made ends meet with jobs as a barista, in retail, and at Applebee's. A rapper friend named Real Good helped get Cuddy work, most notably at Abercrombie & Fitch down at South Street Seaport. Me and Cuddy spent so much time together. It was just fun and like getting money that we needed at the time. So it was like you're folding clothes, but dreaming about like, hey, I'm not going to be doing this for too long because it's going to get on. So confident. If my manager insults me again, I will be assaulting him. After I fuck the manager up, then I'm going to shorten the register up. Let's go back, back to the gap. Look at my check, wanting no scratch. So if I stole, what am I fault? Yeah, I stole, never get caught. What did the Kanye song Spaceship mean to you guys who worked in retail? Oh, so much. It, it was kind of <laughs> like everything that song rooted is how we felt like. But also not in a way where we felt like we won't ever get our spaceship. We felt like it was going to come. We were like super confident and young and like really ignorant, just, you know, ignorant to like life's gravity. We just kind of like, yo, this guy get what we're talking about. Yeah, like that's what we're going through. So spaceships, it was the soundtrack to what we were doing. Real was a connector and spent just as much of his time bringing people together as writing his own rhymes. So it wasn't long before Real brought Cuddy into his inner circle, introducing him to Dot to Genius, a friend at NYU who was trying his hand at producing records. Cuddy was the most interesting person I ever met at the time. I never met anybody from the Midwest. You know, like I grew up in Brooklyn. I was just like, this guy's mad fascinating. Like he had a different slang. Like, me on my other shit and he like one year older than me so like he was kind of like advanced he like introduced me to like 
Miller, the champagne of beers. Like, you know, it's just like he's done stuff earlier, you know, and he used to like smoke cigarettes. So I would go back and tell my guys, my cousin and Dot, like, yo, is this kid, he's mad crazy, blah, 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 blah. Like, he's different. His music is different. And then um, I just connected him. Dot, who lived at his parents' house in East New York, deep in Brooklyn, had studied music since he was young. Now in an attempt to become the next Pharrell or Just Blaze, he'd come straight home after his electrical engineering courses and create music. With his parents' cosign, he skipped working a retail job and put in hours cutting records with underground artists instead. And when Kid Cudi started coming around, everyone recognized a different energy. He had a vision. He knew what he wanted to say and how to say it. And in Dot, he found the perfect collaborator. So much so that they'd record around the clock. My studio in my parents' house was literally on top of their bedroom. And we would make music all night. I'm, so, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm talking about 7 a.m., you know, yelling, you know, reacting, playing the music over and over loud. And my parents, more than anyone, you know, they respected it. So they never got in the way of the creative. They would put the TV on mute if it was too loud while we recorded. You know, they were extremely accommodating. And it, and it really allowed us to really get into that creative bag and really think that we could actually do this. But everything ground to a halt when Cuddy was suddenly left homeless. His roommates had taken his rent money without paying the landlord, leaving them all evicted. Cuddy stood at a crossroads, making the greatest creations of his life, but suddenly unable to pull together the funds to stay in town. It was Dot's father, a pastor with a traditional bent from Nigeria, who extended his hand, inviting Cuddy to stay at their house until he got back on his feet. In providing the opportunity to make music freely and the structure of a home with chores and responsibilities, Dot's dad became the father figure that Cuddy had been missing. He saw himself in Cuddy because he had a situation like that where his roommates fucked him over as an immigrant and not knowing anyone, he found himself homeless for a little bit. So I'm sure it, uh, it spoke to him. And um, Cuddy's been doing music. When I met him, he was working with people even when we were working, he was actively working with people who were just had at least a foot or two in, in the game, you know, and it wasn't until we linked up that people really started to pay attention. So I know how important that time period was. Like, if there's an alternate universe where he went back to Cleveland, maybe I'm working at an electrical engineering firm right now because that's what I was studying, you know, and I'm not doing music. So, you know, we're thankful for all these moments. Charles Hamilton's high school years got a little easier once he found two safe spaces, one of which was the internet. He started a blog on AOL Hometown where he put his words out uninterrupted. Just like in real life, he'd be talkative, funny, oftentimes bubbly. His posts could be hard to follow using coded language. To protect the very vulnerable individual inside, Charles wrapped himself in metaphors and enigmas. He'd been hurt so incredibly deeply that getting to know Charles took a lot of listening. It could be like homework. People could be colors, abstractions, feelings, shadows. He expressed himself through avatars, flat representations of an all-too-real life. Sonic the Hedgehog, for instance. Charles once said, basically, Sonic means sound. Hedgehogs bury themselves in the ground. I'm Sonic the Hedgehog because I bury myself in the sound. When he was having good thoughts, they were represented by the Pink Panther, and Green Lantern stood in for his darker, more melancholy ones. This is Charles. It was a gospel according to Charles Hamilton. That was the first blog. And uh, still very shy. I didn't put too much music out there. I didn't do any YouTube videos. Plus, the internet at FDA wouldn't allow you to go on YouTube to upload anything. So I was like, if I can't, put it all out there, then I'm just going to hold back. More than the internet, young Nate knew there was one better way to connect with Charles. Hear what he's really thinking, I got to listen to a song that he makes about me and shit, and vice versa. If I want to communicate with him, I got to write a verse about him. Um, and then he'll listen to what I'm saying. But yeah, it's a catch-22 with him. Charles's most safe space was in the music studio, 
away from the static of Harlem or the uncertainty of wherever he was sleeping. His high school had bought a Roland 2480, which allowed him and his friends to make and mix music on a professional level. It seemed like a dream to do what Kanye or MF Doom were doing. They gave us that studio because they knew that that was the only way to keep us alive. We would stay there overnight, just having nowhere to go. So we would just be like really, really quiet at a certain time at like five or six o'clock when the building is supposed to shut down. And then the janitors kind of knew that we were in there. So as long as we didn't leave the room, the alarms and things like that in the building wouldn't go off. So around like six or seven o'clock, we would just pack up like snacks and shit like that and lock ourselves into there and get ready to stay in that room until the next morning. What was the studio actually like, though? Oh, it was, it was, can I curse? Oh, yeah. Can I be like, just, all right, so it was a piece of shit at first, (laughs) man. So you had the control room with, like, this shaky computer on it, and we were literally in a boiler room for the school. So if, like, the heat ever went on, on some of the earlier tracks, you can literally hear, like, the heat in the background on, like, behind the microphone. And we had, like, I don't even know where we got it from, but all kinds of, like, bag cushions and wherever we can get anything to insulate the sound at, pretty much. But we loved it. Once we closed that door to the studio, we weren't even in the school anymore. Like, it was just our little thing, our little world, and we just did whatever the hell we wanted to do in there, pretty much. While Charles and his friends were ensconced in their school, about 150 blocks south, Kid Cudi was running around Lower Broadway like the prom king. Here's Vashti. I felt like all of my friends who made anything were going to be famous and rich at some point. I don't think it was something that was in my brain like all the time. It, I think it was just that youthful hope and adoration for your friends. But specifically when I met Cudi, it was like going to his studio sessions and hanging out with him like when he wasn't working at Babe. But with him, it was like, Yes, for sure. He's going to explode. I think that was certain for anyone who knew him or was around him. Cuddy found the creative community of clothing designers, filmmakers, marketers, and musicians on Lower Broadway that he was missing in Cleveland. One of them was Stephen Othello. The first time I ever met Cuddy was, um, it was one of my homegirls' birthday parties. And I remember uh, Cuddy actually battled Mickey. It was like, I wouldn't call it a, a battle, but it was definitely a cipher that was competitive. He was trying to, to outright Mick. You know, he always had uh, melodies and ideas. He hated when you compared him to Nelly. That was not a, you know, <laughs> at the time, you got to think, like, melodies just wasn't a thing. Like, you know, that, that sing-songy flow? Like, yeah. if the only person that was doing that was, like, Chingy and, Melody, uh, and, and Nelly. So, you know, that's the natural, like, you know who you remind me of, bro? It was a compliment. <laughs> but, you know, that could usually feel like, you, what you mean I'm, I sound like Nelly? And I get like, you crazy? <laughs> Cuddy felt he had his own wave, one that people might be slow to catch on to, something he noticed very early on on his song, Dat Nu Nu. Salutations to all, you can call me Cuddy, or a mystery extravagant, cause I'm getting my money, when my doors are swinging, it's like a bird on wheels, you can come to Ohio and you can see how it feels. Here's Mickey Fax. I had met Cuddy at a party, and Cuddy, uh, Cuddy was a loner, but he was always happy. And he always wanted to be an actor. He never really wanted to do music like that. So it was interesting to see when he connected with Dr. Genius and we were working on a lot of music. And he would play stuff with me and my manager at the time. And it kind of took him a little while to kind of bubble. He didn't start bubbling until like June, July of that year. These kids getting together, these like-minded kids that kind of were on the same shit or the similar frequencies. And they appreciated certain kind of art, certain kind of music. And Cuddy was definitely in that scene. I was his hype man very early on in his career. You know, I would be on stage with him, rapping the lyrics with him. It's a, a New York crowd that was like, he wasn't famous, was just looking. This is Jeff Sledge. He's a great looking kid. He's got a great personality. He's a hustler. I remember going to like a couple early shows with Mickey and them guys to see Cuddy. I mean, a room of maybe like 20 people. You guys probably were there. But I mean, like, just nothing, just him just trying. But you could kind of see if this guy gets a shot, he's going to go. Cuddy looked for that shot wherever he went, including up to the Def Jam offices, where he first met Plain Pat, an A&R, and one of Kanye's creative partners. Actually, and I brought that into L.A. Reading at that point. You know, it was really like, out. it was really different. Cuddy's music wasn't radio ready. It wasn't Nelly. It wasn't even Kanye. But Pat took notice of the young talent. 
they not only became friends on MySpace, but friends in real life. And then, you know, we just got cool and we was, was hang out, like go to parties, hang out downtown. After that initial meeting, I hadn't got to talk to him in, in the whole, for a whole year. So it was like a year later and I was at a party on Bowery and he was there and we just started kicking it. And he was like, man, we should do this mixtape. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. He's like, be my manager. And I was like, I'm not trying to be nobody's manager. <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, come on, man. But you know, it just, it just happened because it had to happen. One day, Cuddy hit Dot to schedule time at the studio because he had a major idea. Cuddy brought his musings on loss and regret to the microphone, and Dot matched that loneliness with a melody that sounded like unreturned space communication. Together, they turned a cry for help into an anthem. They called it Day and Night. Day and night, the longest owner seems to free his mind at night. He's all alone through the day and night. The lonely loner seems to free his mind at night. Oh, that was one take. I, I, when I say one take, like I made the beat ASAP. You know, I didn't have to revisit the beat. And uh, we recorded it the next day. Because Cuddy had this idea in his head of how the song should go. And, you know, initially he was kind of singing it. You know, I just suggested that he say it, but in a melodic way instead of singing it. So it kind of changed the whole tone of the song. Here's Chuck English. Cuddy texted it to me right when he was done with it, pretty much. And I think this is before A-Track heard. I was listening to that shit for a whole summer because we were always sending each other stuff. I just remember being like, fuck, I got one. The first time I heard it, I was in front of Dot's crib. We was in front of a car, and Dot was like, yo, listen to this. He played me two songs, that Nunu and Day and Night. And they kind of always go to me for my opinion because, like, I was more of an A and R than a rapper. I thought Nuno was gonna be bigger because I was like that boom, 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 boom was catchier than. So I was like, yo, I think that A night is crazy. There's nothing like it. But that Nuno, that shit's gonna make people bop their head. I was wrong. Kid Cudi had a smash on his hands. He just knew it. And most of his friends knew it. But the world had no clue. Just like other recordings, Cuddy would post the song to his MySpace page and hope it would catch on. But with only a few hundred friends on the site, Day and Night wasn't any more notable than any other demos he'd created. Hoff from On Smash was best friends with Plain Pat. They were co-workers at Def Jam, they shared similar senses of humor and musical taste. Vashti used to throw a 90s party downtown that was like a really cool party we used to go to all the time. One night, we had met this kid who was, you know, Scott and Scuddy. I remember hearing him playing day and night for me and Pat and Pat's car at the time. And just hearing, like, how amazing of a song this was and how unlike it was anything I heard before. And I truly believe the genius in Cuddy and Pat and Emil at the time was identifying that day and night was complete as it was. Leroy Benros was an intern and receptionist at TVT Records, once home to Pitbull and the Ying Yang Twins, when he received an email from Charles by mistake. His interest peaked, though. Leroy listened to Charles's music online and went up to FDA to hear what Charles and his friends were creating. Charles liked Leroy's energy and asked him to be his manager. Leroy knew nothing about managing, but he thought he could help Charles's music get to the world. He established relationships with people like Loki from the blog You Heard That New and began to make the blogs feel like they had something special when premiering new records by Charles. It wasn't long before Chris Lighty, the legendary manager of 50 Cent, Busta Rhymes, Missy Elliott, and Mariah Carey, came knocking. Chris told Leroy that he'd done amazing things on his own, but he was clearly young. In order to be successful in the music business, you need to have a structure. You need to have a team. So he offered Leroy a partnership with his company, Violator Management. Together, they brought in some huge names, surrounding Charles with the best, including Eminem's lawyer, Theo Sedlemeyer, and the boy from Minnesota who grew up to become the West Coast mixtape powerhouse, DJ Ski. The 
kid was incredibly talented. I remember I met him in the studio and I was like, oh, he's different, but in a good way. Like, this is unlike anything that I've heard. And at the time, too, there was a lane for that that hadn't been filled. This is like when I'm in the height of my mixtape days. And Charles was just like a prodigy with music where he would record so much in a way that was unlike anything else. So quantity wasn't an issue. And at the time, that was rare. With names, momentum, and a seemingly endless catalog of music, they started taking meetings with the major labels. Charles remembers it. It was a bidding war, but the war came down to Def Jam and Interscope. Jay-Z had just stepped down as president from Def Jam. Interscope put on the full court press with Joe 3H, the A&R famous for almost signing Kanye to Capitol Records, and the co-founder of the company, Jimmy Iovine. Jimmy Iovine, as much love as I have for him, there's that other 50% that says Jimmy Iovine is going to eat you alive just because he's Jimmy Iovine. Your mission, if you choose to accept, is find out how he's able to do that. So, you know, if I'm smart, I'll run away. I'm not, I want to interscope. Interscope Records was born in 1990 as a boutique alternative to the majors with significant funding itself. A few years later, Rolling Stone reported that, quote, while the major labels were packed with rosters full of expensive veteran artists who had to redefine themselves for a new rock era, Interscope was in the business of signing new artists and could, as Iovine puts it, move on a dime. By the late 2000s, the label had outgrown its legacy competitors, dominating the record industry thanks to partnerships with Eminem, 50 Cent, Dr. Dre, No Doubt, Nine Inch Nails, Lady Gaga, Black Eyed Peas, and countless others. Interscope would sign Charles for seven figures in March 2008 with the goal that he'd be their next pillar. Jimmy Iovine, who before he co-founded the label, had engineered for Bruce Springsteen and produced for Tom Petty, U2, and Stevie Nicks, would executive produce Charles's debut album. Kind of an inside joke was, you know, if this deal doesn't work out, I'd like to be an employee working in the, um, obviously, internet marketing department. After almost two years of buildup, Day and Night hadn't reached the number of ears Cuddy and his team had hoped for, but the people who did hear it couldn't get it out of their heads. Nick Catchdubs, who alongside DJ A-Track, started the independent record label Fool's Gold. So A-Track knew Plain Pat from doing Kanye stuff. And Pat was like, man, I got this kid. He works at the vape store. He's dope. And we were like, okay, cool. And it's as simple as that. Like, you know, A-Track's brother, Dave, used to have an apartment uh, in Morningside Heights because he was going to school there. I remember being at that apartment, no AC, on like an old ass iMac, just listening to demos with A-Track. And so we play one, all right, yeah, this is cool. Play another one, all right, yeah, this is cool. Play day and night. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was, that was dope. We keep going down the list. Returning to it after the fact, being like, man, that minimal do-do-do-do song like that, I'm still thinking about it. And so then we're like, all right, fuck it, cool. We got to do it. And it was as simple as that. Like I said, like it's, it, it's a very pure kind of process. Just sort of like, hey, we like this. Let's do something about it. Fool's Gold was created just one year earlier, a chance for Catch Dubs, an editor for The Fader magazine, as well as a New York club DJ, and A-Track, Kanye's touring DJ and a budding producer and artist, to put on for people that they loved, but who wouldn't normally get a shot at a major label. I think that for us, we were the audience. It was a direct line of communication, and the baked-in sensibilities of what we did were our sensibilities. You know, there was no institutional history that you have to live up to. You know, I think that if you're a label that put out Aretha Franklin and Led Zeppelin and T.I. or whatever, your approach to some new shit that kids are doing is going to be a different approach than what said actual kids are doing. Nick and A-Track, together with A-Track's brother Dave of the band Chromeo and the artist and designer Dust LaRocque, were a tiny, tiny team. Support for creatives by creatives may have been their hallmark, but Fool's Gold stood out for their speed and agility. If a decision needed to be made, it happened really quickly. There wasn't really like, oh, you have to delegate it to this person in this department. When I would visit labels, 
for fader stuff it was always like man why do you guys need a floor to do this you know especially when there'd be like one desk with the two cool interns you know doing something fun it's just sort of like i just want to hang out here fool's gold would go on to sign artists like danny brown and introduce people to asap mob and the migos at their festivals but the first artist they broke was the chicago rapper kid sister who a-track connected with on myspace a-track while on tour with Kanye, composed an instrumental for Kid Sister that Ye took a great liking to, and without warning, jumped on the remix to that song called Pronails. We had some success pretty quickly with Kid Sister Pronails, so we, we had some momentum. And I loved the records, especially Day and Night, which sounded kind of raw and unfinished, almost like a demo, but that's what was cool about it. And I kept listening to it on loop, and so once I told Pat that I wanted to, um, to put this record out, then he was sort of like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I'll make sure that you, you can meet Cuddy and we can all talk. Yeah, I do remember Cuddy coming to uh, the Stronger premiere that I was DJing for Kanye, but uh, and then I also remember we just went to like the restaurant or a coffee shop or something, me, Cuddy, and Pat, and just chopped it up for an hour or so and talked about making plans, and we did a full school single deal just off of that. Fool's Gold gave Cuddy the chance for tons more people to hear his creation. Fool's Gold gave Cuddy some money to put in his pocket. But more than anything, Fool's Gold gave Cuddy the assurance that his one-way ticket to New York was worth it. That the young man who couldn't find himself at college, who suffered through high school, and who shed so many tears growing up was finally heard. There's an innocence about all of this stuff that I'm still very fond of, you know what I mean? Like when we put out the Day and Night 12-inch, we were doing a release party for that with Roxy Cocktail at this club. I had the 12-inch in like a C-Town supermarket bag and like giving it to Cuddy and he's so psyched, like literally like jumping up and down on the little banquette. Like those moments, you know, are very defining of that era to me. But I think that, again, speaking for myself, it was just chasing those simple joys of like, I found something I really love, I wanna share it. And when you actually do it, and especially when there's that physical component, you know, it's very special. Like, you know, we went and made demos where like we burned, but to have an official thing, I remember going into that spring and seeing like, it was like kind of placarded on the wall, like uh, official vinyl. And I was like, wow. And even just the artwork of it was fucking amazing. Like, I couldn't stop staring at, like, the little details of the stars and, like, how it kind of looked like Cuddy <laughs> and stuff like that. It just felt like, oh, it's happening. Like, it's, it's real. Oh, okay, like, this is a legitimate operation. Like, this is not, like, kids dreaming. Like, Cuddy is now officially a musician, even though he always was, but, like, he's, like, a proper... Charles was fresh out of high school. He and his friends weren't old enough to buy liquor. If they played a show at a club, they'd have to leave immediately after. He was living in a hotel room in Los Angeles and had a million dollars in his bank account. All control in his life had been ceded to others. But the one thing he could hold on to was his work. So work he did. All right, cool. So... I'm in the writing room, uh, second floor record room, and I go downstairs. Like, if you want detail, I can make this a Nas song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm aware that you know Kanye is there and you know Game is there, French celebrities are going around. One of the best moments was we were at record plant. He started to have the buzz. I think we had one of the mixtapes out. Kanye was coming around the corner with like the Melania Trump looking chick, and she, you know, he's talking his Kanye shit. Well, Mr. West, and he's like, ah, ah, ah. And uh, he said some shit. He said, um, he's reading a program. It's a dress-up event. And he says, uh, well, this is going to be difficult to go to because I dress down when I dress up, and I dress up when I dress down. So the white woman, she's, you know, fan of white laughs. And um, I'm sitting by the computer. I was either on MySpace or something. And uh, the game comes out, and Kanye in the game, they, you know, they start talking about how they were ciphering outside of Nike Town in some city. So, you know, the game is all hype and kind of like, yeah, yeah, we, we grind. I said, yo, y'all want to get a cypher right now? And okay. It was straight out of a movie from the 80s. Except it was Dr. Dre's protege, The Game, Jay-Z's protege, Kanye West, and Charles Hamilton, 
who was just in Frederick Douglass Academy. The three stood in a circle and wrapped off the top of their heads, picking up off the last person's ending words with no beat and no breaks. Each MC impressed the next with metaphors and wordplay and jokes for 12 minutes. Charles's team instinctively filmed the whole thing. It wasn't planned. It just kind of happened. They were all in the studio at the same time. They connected in the hallway. There was the friendly, like, hip-hop battle where nobody wants to back down. Sometimes once you get a camera in front of you, it's not like the ass. You just did it, and, like, nobody's going to stop and be like, shut down that camera and stuff. We film it and put it on Ski TV, which was my video platform, and, you know, probably the first, like, hip-hop vlog, like, the first daily hip-hop show online. So we had a huge audience to place it through, through there. The blogs, every single one of them, posted that video. Mickey Fax was watching. Charles Hamilton was um, he was a genius to me when I first met him. I first met him in the Bronx, actually, cycling. Years later, I hadn't heard anything from him. And then the next thing you know, there were rumors going around that he had just did a deal with Interscope. You know, they were calling him the next Kanye. And then he popped up on a blog. I never forget this. He popped up on a blog in April with DJ Ski, freestyle. And I was like, Oh, shit. Look at Charles doing what he's doing. Here's Jeff Sledge. Charles was definitely top three best freestylers I've ever heard in my life. He can just look at something and rap about it for 15 minutes. He's, his talent was outrageous. The freestyle video not only showed how quick and smart Charles was, but standing next to two of the biggest stars in the world and organically showing out... You couldn't buy that type of positive virality. It was one of the rare exhibitions of me believing in myself. So, you know, props to me, but like, I believed in myself. Day and Night had official distribution through Fool's Gold, and it was spreading modestly across pockets of the internet. It was getting harder for Cuddy to go unnoticed around New York City hotspots. Sometimes that was because Cuddy made it that way. DJ Drama. I was at Santos. It was after the, the party. It was the let outs. And we're outside. And um, somebody came up to me like, yo, Drum, what's up? And I was like, you know, what's up? Like, just kind of gave him a, a formal what's up. And he was like, it's me, man. It's Kid Cudi. I'm, it's not, I'm not a regular fan, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my bad. What's up, man? Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> so that's definitely how he introduced himself to me. In 2008, the idea of genre was up for debate. Radio had made things relatively easy for the previous 50 years. A program director would make sure the rock station was different than the R&B one, which was different than the country channel. But at this point, MySpace and iTunes allowed you to categorize songs however you wanted. And blogs posted songs that didn't fit into neat little boxes. There was just no real trajectory or expectation for a song like it, other than to let it burn on the internet and have cool people listen to it at their cool people parties. So when A-Track received a MySpace message from the Italian Electro House DJs, Crookers, asking to remix Day and Night for free, it was such a small ask, it was an easy yes. That turned into like the biggest track of the year. All genres combined, you know? Day and night, I toss and turn, I keep stressing my mind, mind. I look for peace, but see I don't attain. What I need for keeps the silly game we play, game we play. The song exploded across Europe, hitting the top 20 on multiple charts and debuting at number two on the UK singles charts behind only Lady Gaga. But when did things really shift in America? A year earlier, when Harlem's own Jim Jones, Cameron's right hand man, and one of hip hop's true trendsetters heard day and night ripped the audio from a website, and recorded his own remix, Crooning Like Cuddy. At that time, Jim Jones was the hottest rapper in the world. And when he jumped on it, first of all, it's this weird music that's so left of center. And the poster child for hood rap has just jumped on this. And it's now playing on Hot 9-7. This is crazy. Amazingly, Jim first unknowingly crossed paths with Cuddy when he was new to the city and working retail. He used to work under Koch at the fucking little rock and roll store that was actually under Koch when I was signed to Koch. That's where I first met Kid Cudi. He used to help me get the fucking bottle cap belts and shit like that, but I didn't know he did music. He just was a black kid inside a skateboard shop wearing skinny jeans way before people knew what skinny jeans were. When Jim heard Day and Night, 
he recognized something hot and put his own spin on it, speaking on his experiences serving drugs, flipping money, and going to court high, all with his trademark ad-libs in the background. Jones, we born to die, for real. So I get high just like I'm born to fly to the moon. I'm in the court with marijuana eyes. Sorry, Josh. We hit the clubs until the morning rise. Cause the last uh, night. Cause day and night. Day and night. We run the streets, hope I don't pay that price. Pray for me. They got the nerve to tell me press my brakes. What? And if I do, then I will rank it pay. We put it up on YouTube or whatever, and somebody at Hot 97 ripped it off of YouTube and started playing it on Hot 97. Ended up being one of the biggest records in Hot 97 for like two straight years. It was cool. Then Kid Cudi ended up getting a big deal. Uh, then he ended up getting a record added around the country and taking me off the version that got him his deal. Being a part of good music and me and Kanye uh, through the uh, lanes of Jim Jones. Whether they want to believe it or not, but that's how it goes. Day and night remixes started popping up everywhere, from Collie Buds to Pitbull. History has forgotten Mr. Worldwide's contribution to the blog era. I, I say this with, with no facetiousness. Like, Pitbull was always first on these club records. The song's popularity took Cuddy to Australia for a two-week run of club dates. A few days after returning to the States, Plain Pat told him that Kanye wanted to fly him out to Hawaii to work on Jay-Z's Blueprint 3 album. And upon returning to New York to finish his debut mixtape, A Kid Named Cuddy, his dreams were bigger than ever. When we did the Kid Named Cuddy mixtape with 10 Deep, they had the big like a release party. And at this point, like we didn't have any gauge of how big he was, because all we were used to was just like, you know, being around us, the same people that like, we'd be at these parties. And like, like he was saying, like, we'll make you And then we got there and the line was like two blocks long. Um, it was by the, the Rebel Space on Canal and the line was like two blocks long. We're like, yo, like, like, we must be doing something right. Like, it was before you could really like grasp what people really felt about you. I feel, I feel like. The mixtape was the fullest picture of Kid Cudi yet. And it hit all the right notes for 2008. He was sad, but it was danceable. He referenced Bathing Apes, Outkast, Dilla, and the indie pop folk group Postal Service. Wale got a verse in. It was sponsored by the Camo Reengineers at 10 Deep. This was a new voice for a generation. Sycamore. I think Kid Cudi uh, was so cool because he represented like kids didn't have to be like always happy all the time. You know, he was like a hip hop rocker. He was like a rock star. He would do songs with Rat Tat Tat and MGMT, you know? People still really haven't hit that pocket still up to this day. So that was like prime time alternative music. You know, that was like prime time Williamsburg, you know? Ian Edelman, the creator of HBO's How to Make It in America, saw a promo video for a kid named Cuddy and knew immediately that he needed that guy walking across that screen to lead his scripted series about young creatives running around New York City. So he walked into Santo's party house, the same place where an unknown Cuddy had approached DJ Drama on a mission to find Scott Miscuddy, America's next superstar. Charles Hamilton was viewed as a massive talent at Interscope, for sure. But the system wasn't willing to completely bend Charles's way. When I submitted Substance Abuse, uh, uh, Jimmy said, that's the best third album he's ever heard in his life. Now go make a debut. And I'm like, uh, you know, it, it, Jimmy Iovine, it's like shit. Like, you know, like Jimmy Iovine just confirmed what I don't look at as, to myself as far as being a musician, producer, composer. He confirmed it, but there was no further direction. And, you know, a debut album in 2008 would sound like a Polar to Dawn, High Sense, for the, the street single, Timberland. First single, second single, Will I Am, second to last song on the album, uh, either Diplo or Trent Risner, last song on the album, like me and an acoustic guitar. Basically, my first album was expected to sound like So Far Gone. And it's like, I mean, I, I came here with a direction. And even with the direction, I took it back to a musical era that can't be denied as far as the production on the Pink Lava Lamp and the folder that came with it. So, like, this is a surefire classic album and sound. It's just professional. Charles was directionless. So Leroy brought an idea to the table to re-engage Jimmy with their headliner 
and take advantage of the internet love he'd been getting. A blog tour of sorts. Together with DJ Ski, they drop a brand new album or mixtape, as free online projects were now called, every two weeks. And each project would be released in conjunction with a specific website. They'd call this series of eight digital albums the Hamiltonization process. Somewhere on a desktop leaves the zip file mixtape of the next pot kid. Let's not kid ourselves, be clear. You see me, I run Z shit. And mega upload with my forever stepping up flow. Just know I'm just waking up so. When I yawn, y'all get more. Not feeling how I explore all F4. The challenge with the blogs at the time, and, and there's studies that show that, like, look, it would take like people eight times of them seeing like a name for it to even like register in their head, let alone before they'd click on it. So you just had to be top of mind and, and realize a lot of time that people aren't listening. It's it's just a look, and you're building your brand. So they keep seeing it every day. Charles Hamilton, Charles Hamilton, Charles Hamilton. They're not even processing it. Then they're like, okay, cool, I see it. Then you see. Charlie, the mixtape. Okay, then you see, oh, Charles Hamilton game Kanye. Okay, cool. Let me click on this. Then you see another mixtape, and you're like, shit. Let me click. Like, yo, what is this? What's everybody talking about? So, a lot of that strategy is like you have to realize and be real with yourself. Not everybody is listening to every project and going to do that. How do we get out there? And that was what's so great about teaming with all the different blogs is that we were able to reach all of these different people. Here's David Dennis from the smoking section. He also was really early, like one of the first things he did was he made a mixtape that went out to every website. And so he had a smoking section mixtape, an all right, a two dope boys mixtape. Like he knew the audience and he reached out to him and, you know, he was doing stuff before a lot of other people were doing them. Stephen Othello. That was like the first time you ever seen something like that. Like people were like doing like premieres on blogs, actual albums on blogs was kind of crazy to me um, at the time. And he was the man. He was like the God at one point. Brooklyn Girls, with its super catchy hook and effortless punchlines, was red meat for radio and was featured on the fifth season of the HBO hit series Entourage. But to his online audience, every song was special. Low-key from You Heard That New. The volume of what they were putting out was incredible. And we were just like, how are they just throwing out all this music? But it was just coming so rapidly and it was all fucking dope to put out this body of work and not none of them miss. That's why I just thought he was the next thing to blow. This is Ev Boogie. I think that I understood volume and consistency was key. And the fact that he had the ability to kind of do that. And the cosign, because Ski in itself was a cosign, which I think helped propel him as an artist to the outlets, to the bloggers, right? Like that Ski cosign at that time was something that could take an artist from zero to 60. You know, look, like he took a strategy that worked in a time where the mass appeal of people is that they were consuming anything that they could get on it. Because it was like this very new thing, you know, to get free music and to be able to, like, put it on your iPod at the time and walk around with it. It was like being a kid in a candy store, you know, and I, me as a consumer was like as much shit as I can jam on my iPod, I'm going to do. You know, I got long train rides. I got long subway rides. I got long cab rides. So I want to have that access in my pocket. You know, the fact that they were able to crush that quantity thing, that was the strategy at the time until it wasn't. The Hamiltonization process was a brilliant digital effort that showed that Charles Hamilton, the one million dollar man, was more substance than style. It assured everyone that he was bigger than one viral video. Charles and Cuddy put their full selves out there for the world to judge. Right as technology and access crumbled whatever walls had been set up between artists and fans. This was a new world. Charles and Cuddy had each set up their own blogs and built one-to-one connections via social media platforms. You've got MySpace, Facebook, and YouTube. Tumblr and Twitter were just starting up, which took the idea of blogging and made it quicker, easier, more potent. This was like taking a highway and painting over the lines. Here's Queens rapper Action Bronson. To have somebody 
be able to message me directly to something that's connected to my phone and I'll possibly see while I'm shitting is exciting <laughs> to most people. It's exciting because, you know, you're like me, I'll fucking DM Denzel, like, yo, what's good? Who knows if he'll see it? Maybe he will, maybe he won't. <laughs> but the freedom but the freedom to have that is fucking next level. It's pretty amazing. Joe Budden, from the beginning, aimed to connect directly to his people, which was different than anyone else on Def Jam's roster at the time. He was in the forums. He created Joe Budden TV. Joe's goal was always to take the mystery out of celebrity. Listen, you're talking to the guy that invited fans to kickball games for six years in a row. Earlier in my career, I would invite fans to different bowling alleys to meet up. Like I used to really hang out with the fans. I think before Moon Music 3, I picked a bunch of fans and they flew out and just listened to the shit like a month early and we hung out in the studio. That's ingrained in my story. It is connecting with people. Some of my good friends today were fans that I maybe connected with and built a long-lasting relationship with. Some of the people that work for me today were fans. Like, we're a community. We're a family. Joe's right-hand man from the Joe Budden podcast, Ice. Doing things like, yo, we was playing kickball in a park with strangers. Like, looking back, that was nuts. Not a, not a drop of security, and we just tweeting out the location. Yo, we're at 30th Street Park in North Bergen, or whatever the hell it was, and people pulling up. Not a lick of security. This sudden lack of boundaries was a lot to handle, though. You had people who were dealing with a lot. A lot of money, a lot of pressure, a lot of attention. Who now had the world's largest megaphone at their fingertips. But where sound could disappear, the internet's forever. Take Kid Cudi. He had a blog just like Big Sean, Drake, and Kanye did. On March 16, 2009, he saw a video of Joe Budden talking to Wale, his longtime best friend in the music industry. They were talking about him. Wale expressed some vague disappointment that he and Cuddy weren't as close as they once were. But rather than call up Wale to discuss, Kid Cuddy felt the best way to confront the issue was in public, allowing his fans in on his thinking. In a long blog post, he wrote that this video was the tipping point and he would retire as soon as his debut album was done. He was tired of what he viewed as the music industry's ways. He said, I'm just a regular dude who was given an amazing gift, and now with that amazing gift came more uncalled for problems than the average human being should have to deal with. It's one of those dumb posts that he probably regretted the next day, but he couldn't just erase the deep feelings that his fans shared. If Cuddy said jump, his fans would say, what bridge? I think that the intimacy, if you will, about connecting with an artist got so much more intense during the blog era because you felt like it was being more personalized to you than it was in those earlier days, you know? Plus the access was delivered right to your home. So I think those connections run deeper and then the fandom feels so much more too. I think that close access to them makes a fan feel like they want to be more supportive and they want to do more for that artist too. So I'm talking about like going to see them at a live show or purchasing merch. Two days later, Cuddy emerged at South by Southwest to say that he was unretiring, explaining that he had been overwhelmed. For Charles, direct connections with his people was all he knew since the AOL days. His candor through his blog entries and his music brought him an audience. Interacting with a video camera and letting the footage find its way around the internet was just a new way of spreading his message. But by December 2008, things were taking a weird turn. Charles was on video, starting beefs with Soldier Boy and Wale. Corey Guns then started shit with him because he'd heard Charles was talking bad on his name. He lost battles to Penn State frat boys on YouTube. And then, and then. In May of 2009, Charles Hamilton flew into Los Angeles and was picked up from the airport by Brianna Latrice. They had a complicated romantic relationship, to say the least, on top of her being his personal assistant. That night, Brianna was mad at Charles because he had landed late, and now they were running behind on the way to a venue when they were stopped by someone with a camera and a microphone. The two of them can be seen 
flirting in a very New York way, which is to say, roasting one another. Brianna mentioned that she had written a poem about Charles hours beforehand, and she was coaxed into performing it as long as Charles could respond. Go hard and live long. This only a message. This ain't just a love song. It's a goodbye, cause I know we won't get along. I ain't gonna be fussing and fighting with you no more. I'ma get it right, cause I know I should move on. And then Charles did respond. I won before I even opened my mouth. So you should already know what that poem was about. So, to not even belabor the point, you made your point, now let me make up a more major point. Okay, call me irresponsible and immature, but you're beautiful. What the hell else would I hit it for? <laughs> now, I could say that I hit it raw, but that would mean that you would have to get in a bar or I just not need to go there. That's no fair. There's no squares in this circle, so why would you go, oh yeah, you're here, in front of oh. The video showed Charles getting punched in the face by Brianna. It didn't show them walking down the street, making up, and continuing on with their night. And it almost didn't come out, except that Charles wanted it out there. Here's young Nate. That is true. Well, I met with the dude. They weren't going to release that video at all. Charles asked them to release the video. It's a question that you got to ask them, and he'll never tell me the answer. And now having a conversation with Charles and like having this conversation with Charles 10 years ago, but... If it was depression, then it was depression. He was just tired of doing the shit. Like, and anything to torpedo with. DJ Ski. We had things rolling. That record was incredible. We had it in Entourage. Like, it was there. And then, you know, I started seeing some of the stuff online with Charles, with him getting in fights, things happening online. And it was just, you know, a lot. There was a lot going on. He was on the road. Like, stuff just wasn't connecting. I'm not his day-to-day guy. I'm not the manager. I'm helping, like, put together the, the concepts and those ideas. So I had limited visibility, and, you know, that wasn't my place to jump in. And like everybody else, I witnessed some of, uh, all of that stuff happening publicly, like the, the live videos. I forget there was the, the one video especially that got out there that everybody reacted to and everybody saw, and I was just like, damn, dude, like, just as quick as they love you, they love to quickly turn on you. The video was everywhere. It was turned into so many memes. Someone took the clip and animated Sonic the Hedgehog's rings flying outwards when Charles got punched. Charles Hamilton, once hero to the internet, had lost them. Charles and Brianna did video interview after interview, together, separately, together again. Yo, yo, what's up, y'all, man? We back here with Charles Hamilton and his girlfriend, Brianna. A lot of people got it twisted in the streets, you know what I'm saying? We're going to clear the airways right now. They even ran into Hood News again, who recorded the original video just two days earlier. I apologize, honestly, for putting some things out there that shouldn't have been out there. You know what I mean? Like, I understand it, and it was the heat of the moment. I ain't get a chance to really talk to you about it. So I just want to tell you that I apologize because I know what I shouldn't have said. They would complain about the attention and then come back for more. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to thank you for your apology. I'm going to apologize for acting outside of the normal, and we're going to talk about our personal business on our personal time. Thank you for allowing us to do this. You know what I mean? It was unexpected, but it is what it is. I want to, hey, and I want to thank y'all for giving me that interview, and I want to say, you know, hats off to you, you know what I'm saying, for not reacting in a crazy way, holding your composure, you know what I'm saying? It takes a real man to do that. If y'all disrespecting this man in the streets because his girl punched him, then something wrong with you. Check your manhood. Ladies, if your man talking shit about, you know, he, he ain't a real nigga or whatever, fuck him. This hood news, y'all. It was a downward spiral that would not end. Was there anybody who was, like, somebody that he could rely on at that time? Nobody. We're dealing with an addict that's hurt other people, that's hurt people, that we're all standing around. And I can't really speak on certain things because it, it would more so come from his perspective or whatnot. But it was just, we, we were really, really young. A dozen years later, the video of Charles and Brianna might not have the same legs. Here's Currency. It was slowing down for a week. And then everybody back, now what's he going to do now? And it will fucking go crazy. But in 2009, the landscape was primed for something like this. With the huge amount of blogs all operating in the same space, 
competition to find and post new content was at a fever pitch. And because the ad networks rewarded page views, the volume shot up. Noah Callahan Bever, then chief creative officer at Complex. There was enormous pressure for us to figure out this new business and to create a real and sustainable audience. And obviously, you know, given the nature of display advertising, which worked off the metric of page views, during that early period, page views were incredibly important. Bloggers needed more content to post. In addition to music, space was filled with track listings, gossip items, and video clips. It became too much when I didn't care what I was posting. I was just posting the post just to say I posted today or I have post up today. Like I wasn't listening to shit. You know, I was even not commenting on the music. There's a link, boom, done. Yeah, well, that definitely is what happened, right? Is like uh, they had to fill, it's like a 24-hour news cycle. Gotta have stuff and you gotta drive people. And then you have someone like Charles who probably is just as much a part of his own downfall as anyone because he was filming stuff. I mean, I don't think it was always in getting filmed. Sometimes he wanted, sometimes he was doing it for the moment and then the moment would blow up in his face. So it's twofold. You not only have these websites that are trying to fill content, but you have people trying to be that content. And that can lead to not so good things happening. You know what I'm saying? But it's also more likely to happen simply because everyone wants a camera on so they can end up on the blogs, even if they were hoping to get on for a different reason. And the major labels did their best to feed that fire, sending video content, good, bad, or ugly, to the blogs so that the machine would keep on turning and their artists would stay in the center of culture. Marketing executive and former editor at the smoking section, Dimples. So when you're talking about the cultural shift, like how does the Charles Hamilton video go viral, it was literally a moment where lightning striped because blogs were losing the battle of the digital forefront of music. And they were losing it not because what they were doing wasn't important. They were losing it because the people who own the record wanted to figure out additional ways to get paid for their records because they realized people like us were looking for ways to consume it digitally. Control had to be taken back. The face of Universal Music Group's Infringement Protection Department was a man named David Benjamin. Amazing entertainment lawyer, left entertainment law to go run the team. He's over there and they're figuring out ways to comb through the internet and identify whether the songs that we're saying are the songs, are records that they own, so they can claim them and figure out later on how to monetize against them. The issue with claiming them, because so many host sites, so like the GoDaddy's, the Bluehost, of the Gator Host, what have you, of this world, didn't know how to deal with the influx of claims. They're getting thousands of claims. Low-key site, you heard that new. They're getting thousands of claims, right? Like, not right, they're getting thousands of claims. So they're now having to figure out, how do we relegate this so we don't have to deal with this anymore? Which is when you start seeing the copyright strike start. So, like, sites are getting hit with copyright strikes or infringement strikes for sharing music, even if the artist gave them permission, if the artist assigned to a universal entity, a Sony entity, what have you, Sony and Universal own the records. So they're being claimed and the host server's like, hey guys, um, we got another claim, a copyright strike for the song that she posted, three strikes and you're out. So that's when you begin to see blogs have to shift to the type of content that they share. It can't just be pure music because unless you, Joe the Rapper, own the entirety of your song or not signed to a major label and it even makes sense for me to post, the likelihood is I'm going to run into a circumstance where the label you are signed to is going to eventually want to claim and monetize this, and my site will be taken down even though you gave me the song. But if you have a video of Charles Hamilton getting smacked... But if I have a video of Charles Hamilton getting smacked, getting outwrapped, what have you, this is going to shift where I can share this content and at the bottom tell you Charles Hamilton has a new song out and you can go find it yourself, but you're still clicking on my site because... I'm posting about it. (laughs) 
The Blog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Benner. Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlos. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Timhotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This is The Blog Era.